Hi, I'm Chris Green, the History Chap, telling stories that bring British history to life. The Battle of Atbara, fought between 10,000 British, Egyptian, Sudanese troops and 15,000 Mahdists in 1898, was a decisive victory for General Herbert Kitchener. It cleared the way for him to advance for his final showdown with the Mahdi's successor at the Battle of Omdurman. This episode follows on from Kitchener's Desert Railway, so if you haven't already, you might want to catch that one first. With the completion of that 220-mile railway through the harsh Nubian desert, Kitchener was finally able to bring British troops, including the Cameron and Seaforth Highlanders and the Warwickshire and Lincolnshire regiments, to join his Egyptian and Sudanese army advancing against the Mahdi's successor, the Khalifa. In response, the Khalifa sent a 15,000-strong army under his cousin, Mahmud, and a veteran warrior, Osman Digna, to confront him at Atbara, just east of the Nile. The Mahdist army established a fortified position, forcing Kitchener into a risky frontal assault. His attack on Good Friday, the 8th of April 1898, resulted in a decisive victory, with over 3,000 Mahdists killed and 4,000, including their commander, captured. His success at the Battle of Atbara cleared the way for Kitchener to march towards the Khalifa's main army at Omdurman. It was a battle that featured two future First World War commanders, Douglas Haig and David Beatty, and for fans of Dad's army, it also featured a Corporal Jones. Maybe that's all you want to know about the Battle of Atbara, but if you want to find out exactly what happened, and also find out about Corporal Jones, then here we go. As General Herbert Kitchener had slowly advanced into Sudan along the River Nile in 1896 and 1897, his opponent, the Khalifa, had been biding his time. Abdullahi ibn Muhammad was now in his 50s. It was he who had proclaimed Muhammad Ahmed as the Mahdi back in the 1880s. His closest and keenest supporter, he had assumed power upon the Mahdi's death in 1885. He had over the years become increasingly tyrannical and removed from his people. And by the late 1890s, he was losing some of the support and cohesion which the Mahdi had galvanised. Highly religious and conservative, he continued to hold to the strict Islamic message of the Mahdi. And that was to be his ultimate downfall. He had witnessed the annihilation of the Egyptian army under British General Hicks Pasha in the early 1880s and then the storming of Khartoum in 1885. Whilst many of his warriors possessed modern firearms and artillery captured from those Egyptian armies 10 years ago, many others still relied on the traditional weapons and their faith. But by viewing the world through the lens of fighting the Egyptians led by British officers in the early 1880s, the Khalifa was making a fatal error. Times had changed. The army that Kitchener was bringing up the Nile was not the same as the forces suffering from low morale and poor leadership that the Mahdists had defeated in the past. The Egyptian army had been thoroughly overhauled by British officers such as Sir Evelyn Wood and General Francis Grenfell, and the latest Sirdar of the Egyptian army, Herbert Kitchener. The Khalifa chose to ignore that it was this new-style Egyptian army, many of whose members were Sudanese exiles, that had beaten his armies at the Battle of Toski when they invaded Egypt just a few years beforehand. Moreover, these professional and disciplined Egyptian and Sudanese battalions were now being joined by thousands of regular British soldiers. By early 1898, the first Seaforth Highlanders, the first Queen's Own Cameron Highlanders, the first Warwickshires and the first Lincolnshire Regiment were heading down Kitchener's Desert Railway from Egypt to Abu Hamid and then taking steamships up the Nile to Berber. And by seeing the world through the lens of previous battles, the Khalifa also failed to realise the fundamental changes to the war that Kitchener's Desert Railway made. Supplies and men could arrive in Sudan faster and more frequently than the old days. Nor did he appreciate just how vulnerable Kitchener's reliance on that railway was. If the Mahdists had chosen to sabotage it, rather like Lawrence did to the Turkish railways in Arabia during the First World War, 
history may have played out very differently for the Khalifa. Therefore, through 1897, the Khalifa gathered a huge army, numbering approximately 150,000, at his capital at Omdurman, across the Nile from the ruined Khartoum, ready for one all-out battle. But while he pondered his next move, his warriors were getting agitated. Without the charisma of the Mahdi, the Khalifa knew he needed to act if he was to retain his authority. Finally, in March 1898, he ordered his 34-year-old cousin, Emir Ahmad Mahmud, to advance down the Nile towards Berber, with a force of 10,000 men to block Kitchener's advance. Like the Khalifa himself, Mahmud came from the Bagara people from the Sahel region of western Sudan. Culturally, the Bagara were brave almost to the point of madness. The mark of a man was to kill an enemy or a wild animal at close quarters. The Khalifa had personally hunted animals armed just with a spear in his younger days. Even facing the British at the Battle of Abu Klea back in the 1880s when General Wolseley was trying to rescue Gordon, they had eschewed modern weapons and preferred to fight their enemy at close quarters. Many refused to even carry the hippo-hide shields that other Sudanese warriors had carried into battle. Mahmud had this bravery in his blood, which was admirable. However, he was also headstrong. The Khalifa decided that Mahmud would be joined by the veteran warrior Osman Digna with a force of 5,000 of his Beja soldiers. Digna was one of the few of the Khalifa's senior generals to actually have met the British in battle. Although he had survived the encounters, he had always come off second best, and he urged his young fellow commander to proceed with caution. But Mahmud refused to listen to the experience of Osman Digna, who was 20 years his senior. Osman Digna believed in living to fight another day, although in fairness, many of his troops were left dead on the battlefields that their leader had walked away from. Mahmud believed in death or glory charges. It wasn't what you'd call an easy working relationship. And it didn't help that despite all being Sudanese, Mahmud's Bagara warriors and Osman Digna's 5,000 Bejas were culturally very different, which further strained relations. Their advance down the Nile was spotted by Kitchener's steamboats that were patrolling the river. Under heavy bombardment from the steamboats, Mahmud and Osman Digna withdrew inland and headed northeast towards the river Atbara. Their intention was to cross the almost dry river and then circle downstream of Berber and strike Kitchener from behind. But having crossed the Atbara, Mahmud decided to establish a fortified camp or Zariba on the other side. Zaribas are temporary fortifications constructed mainly with a combination of rocks and thorn bushes. Mahmud's encampment was shaped in a semicircle with the dry river at its back. Apart from the stone and thorn barrier, it also consisted of a series of trenches several feet deep behind the Zariba itself. Inside were stationed 10,000 foot soldiers and 5,000 Bagara cavalry. While most of his warriors were armed with their traditional weapons, some were armed with rifles captured in those successful campaigns 10 years earlier. Also from those glory days were captured artillery, which the Mardists could operate with considerable effect. On the 30th of March, British mounted scouts discovered the Zariba. Kitchener had moved most of his army forward from Berber to where the Atbara joined the Nile. Mahmud's sudden rush across the desert away from the Nile had caught him by surprise. Now with the news from his scouts, he dug in and waited for the attack. After all, it was the traditional Mahdist battle tactic. Attack in overwhelming numbers and trust that God would deliver victory. Nothing happened. The days dragged by and both armies seemed to be content to sit in their fortified encampments. Finally, on the 4th of April, Kitchener moved his entire force four miles closer to the Mahdists. Still, Mahmud refused to move. It seemed that despite all his Bagara enthusiasm for death and glory, Mahmud was not keen to take Kitchener on in an open battle, which presented him with a problem. What exactly was he going to do? This hiatus also presented Kitchener with a problem. 
he had convinced both the Egyptian and British governments to fund his large military campaign, which was now travelling further up the Nile than Wolseley had done, and he had nothing to show for it. Furthermore, he would be foolish to continue his advance on Khartoum with a force of 15,000 enemy on his flank. So, for both practical military reasons and for personal prestige, Kitchener decided that if Mahmud wouldn't come to him, he would take the battle to the Mahdists. Finally, as the sun set on the 7th of April, Kitchener ordered his men to break camp and silently advance towards the Mahdists of Reba. Night advances are notoriously hard to get right. Indeed, the history of the British army is littered with night marches that ended up in the wrong place and resulting calamity. This one, however, went to all intents and purposes very smoothly. As the first chinks of light appeared in the eastern sky on the 8th of April 1898, which just so happened to be Good Friday, the British, Egyptian, Sudanese force moved into their final positions. The infantry stared across the acacia scrubland towards a forest of date palms 900 yards away that marked the position of the Mardis Sariba. Kitchener had divided his force into three assaults. On his left were the British Brigade under General William Gatacre. Gatacre had arrived in Sudan fresh from India, having made his name in the Northwest Frontier Campaign and the relief of Chitral in 1895. A strict disciplinarian and a believer in pushing his men physically to the limit, the troops had nicknamed Gatacre General Backacre. The leading unit here in his assault at Atbara would be the Cameron Highlanders. To Gatacre's right were the two Egyptian brigades under General Sir Archibald Hunter. They numerically comprised the majority of Kitchener's army, both here and later at Omdurman. Closest to Gatacre was Hector MacDonald, with one Egyptian and three Sudanese battalions. On the far right was the 2nd Egyptian Brigade, under John Maxwell. Maxwell would go on to take command of the British forces in Ireland during the 1916 Easter Rising. Behind them, on the bluff overlooking the Zariba, Kitchener had stationed his artillery of 24 Krupp's guns. To his immediate left, he positioned his Maxim guns and a rocket battery, commanded by a young naval officer, Lieutenant David Beatty. The Egyptian cavalry, once more commanded by British officers, screened his desert flank. Kitchener had felt relieved that the night advance had proceeded so accurately and quietly. But now as he peered down at the Zariba, Kitchener had an uncomfortable feeling. Apart from some banners hanging limply along the barricade, it was strangely quiet. Where on earth were the defenders? Had they retreated? Were they at this very moment somewhere to his east, skirting round to cut him off from his base in Berber? Surely they couldn't really be sleeping. Just after 6am, he ordered his artillery to fire on the silent Mardis camp. 24 guns opened up, sending shells shrieking into the Zariba. Through the flash of explosions and dust being thrown up, Kitchener could observe white-robed figures running around the camp. At least he knew his enemy were there. The Mardis cannon replied, but their shots sailed over Kitchener's troops. Suddenly, the Bagara cavalry galloped out of the encampment and moved towards his left, but they were checked by a squadron of Egyptian cavalry, along with the rapid fire of two Maxim machine guns. The Mardis retired. Incidentally, one of the British officers serving in the Egyptian cavalry that day was Douglas Haig. Indeed, Haig went to the rescue of an Egyptian soldier under fire, an action for which many present felt he should have been awarded the Victoria Cross. The bombardment went on for just over an hour. Once the guns finally fell silent, there was a lull, as the infantry brigades moved into position. The Sirdar sent a message down to the waiting soldiers. Remember Gordon, the men before you are his murderers. At 8.10, the infantry began their advance towards the Zariba. They moved in silence, no shouting or cheering. The only noise came from the thud of thousands of boots. 
Above that ominous marching sound, the skirl of the Highlanders' bagpipes filled the air, followed by the drums of the English battalions. Ahead of them, the Zareba had once more fallen into silence. Gataker paused his British brigade and ordered a volley to be fired before continuing his advance. MacDonald and Maxwell copied him. Still nothing from the Zareba. And then, just 300 yards from their objective, Kitchener's troops ran into a hail of fire from the Mardists. As his troops now started to sustain casualties, they charged. As per his usual style, Gataker was driving his men forward faster than the Egyptian and Sudanese brigades, when suddenly the Bagara cavalry once more charged his flank. The brave horsemen of the Sahel were driven off by the Warwickshire regiment along with the Maxims. The British brigade surged forward. Gataker himself was one of the first to reach the Zareba, pulling the thorn branches aside with his bare hands. The Cameron Highlanders were quickly alongside him, breaking through the barrier. And as the Camerons provided covering fire, the Seaforth Highlanders charged into the Mardist camp. Gataker's men now laid down an enfilade fire into the trenches behind the Zareba, allowing the other brigades to break through. MacDonald's 11th Sudanese Battalion broke through and found themselves directly facing Mahmoud's redoubt. Mahmoud's personal bodyguard fired a devastating volley that mowed down the first company of Sudanese. So many fell that a British officer running up behind them inquired why they were all lying down. It was only when he heard the moans of the wounded and the silence of the dead that he realised that 90 of the 100 men in that advance guard had been taken out by Mahmoud's bodyguard. The incensed Sudanese battalion launched a ferocious assault on the redoubt. In bitter hand-to-hand -hand fighting, they wiped out most of the defenders, and they found Mahmoud hiding beneath his bed. Stabbing the Mardist Amir in the leg with a bayonet, they dragged him outside, and it was only the intervention of a Royal Artillery officer, Major Franks, that prevented the Khalifa's cousin being lynched. Meanwhile, Kitchener's army pushed through the Zareba. The Warwickshires were now in the compound and engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fighting with the defenders. And for those of you who love Dad's army, you'll be pleasantly surprised to know that one of their number was indeed a Corporal Jones. Sadly, not the star of the classic British comedy series, this particular Corporal Jones was actually pioneer Corporal Jones, the regimental carpenter. Entering the Zareba armed with his axe, the six-foot Jones dodged a Bagara warrior's ten-foot spear before bringing his axe down with such force that he cleft the warrior's head in two. The Mardists were now desperately trying to flee across the dried up riverbed as 6,000 British, Egyptian and Sudanese troops lined the bank firing at them. The fighting in the Zareba had only lasted five minutes, but in that short time Kitchener had lost 80 men killed and 479 wounded. 20 of the dead were officers, which proves if nothing else that Victorian officers were willing to give their lives leading from the front. The main brunt of the casualties were borne by MacDonald's Sudanese battalions, who had lost somewhere over 400 men killed and wounded. The heaviest casualties within the British Brigade fell to the Cameron Highlanders, who had been the first to arrive at the Zareba. They lost 15 killed and 45 wounded. The Mardists, on the other hand, had lost 2,000 men killed within the Zareba, and at least a further 1,000 in the retreat, mainly in the dried-up bed of the Atbara River. 4,000 of their number were captured. Many subsequently defected and joined Kitchener's Sudanese battalions. Only just over a third of Mahmoud's army survived to fight another day. Amongst them, as usual, was Osman Digna, who would make a further appearance at the Battle of Omdurman. Kitchener rode into the Zareba and was welcomed by ecstatic cheering from his men. In his first major battle in this campaign, Kitchener had been victorious. The Khalifa now knew that the British army were very different to the armies that the Mahdi had defeated in the past. In fact, the Egyptian forces and the Sudanese battalions had also proved that they were every bit as brave and disciplined as their British counterparts too. As he acknowledged the cheers, Kitchener rubbed tears from his eyes and was too emotional to speak. As a fellow officer commented, the commander, who became known as the Sudan Machine, was for a quarter of an hour 
quite human. By 9am his army had retreated to the ridge above the camp, from where his attack had started, less than three hours earlier. There they tucked into a classic Victorian soldier's breakfast of tinned meat and army biscuits, washed down with cups of tea. The defeated Marmwood was brought before Kitchener. Beaten, injured, but still defiant, he told Kitchener that he would pay for this victory at Omdurman, where the Khalifa was waiting for him. But by the time Kitchener reached Omdurman five months later, his army would have doubled to over 25,000 men. They would include the Grenadier Guards, the Northumberland Fusiliers, the Lancashire Fusiliers and the Rifle Brigade, along with the veterans of Atbara. Also present, but not with Kitchener's approval, was an ambitious young officer and writer, Winston Churchill. The Battle of Omdurman would in many ways be the high point of Queen Victoria's empire, one in which that young Winston Churchill would participate in one of the last great cavalry charges of the British army and a battle in which Hector MacDonald and his Sudanese soldiers would play a crucial and forgotten role. So join me next time as I explore the charge of the 21st Lancers, including Winston Churchill, at the Battle of Omdurman. In the meantime, if you enjoy my work, please support me and get access to exclusive episodes by hitting the subscribe button below. I'm Chris Green, the History Chap. Thanks for joining me today. Keep well, and I'll speak to you again very soon.